people often say to me, you've got good hands. And, and what, I, what I think is that I've got good eyes. I think that um, my hands are always going to be limited by, by, by what I can see. Welcome to the Dental Head Start Podcast. I'm David Keir, and this month we're doing a few reruns. I'm taking the month off, less interviewing this month, but this episode you don't want to miss if you didn't hear it the first time. It's with Dr. Tony Rotondo, one of the most well-known specialist prosthodontists in Australia. I love this episode. We go through his story. We talk about photography, working with your ceramist, how he got to where he is, which is just fascinating stuff. And he says a quote that I'll never forget. You can't do something with your hands unless you can see it first. Talking about our ability to understand aesthetics before we can provide good aesthetics. This episode is packed with information from one of the most influential people in Australia. And I want to thank him again. It was two years ago when we recorded. Thank you, Dr. Rotondo, for coming on the podcast. Now, at the end of this episode, we have Erica's Corner. Erica is our social media and basically the person who helps me keep on track. She's been so helpful with the podcast and she's going to do some of the announcements, talk about the giving project, talk about a dental spotlight on someone who's doing great things in the industry that we want to give a leg up and basically just keep you guys up to date. So look for Erica's Corner at the end of each of the feature episodes from now on. But for now, enjoy the episode with Dr. Tony Rotondo. So, Tony, it's a pleasure to sit down and have this chat. You're really well known in the dental community and you're someone that you do amazing work and to a young graduate, it's something that really, it's hard to imagine how you even got there. So, I'm looking forward to having this chat. And we actually met last year and it was a pleasure chatting with you and finding you genuinely humble and willing to share. So, thank you for spending the time with me on Dental Head Start Podcast. Pleasure, pleasure to be asked, David. Looking forward to the conversation. I want to learn a bit about your your early influences. Your dad was a dentist, is that right? Yeah, my dad was a dentist in North Queensland, so he was a, a general practitioner in a small country town. Um, I mean, I, I don't think there was anything especially remarkable about his practice except that it was a busy general practice. And, um, uh, you know, I, I suppose more than anything, dad was uh, an especially nice person and... Um, uh, I, I don't know. He, he he seemed to contribute a lot to the local community. I mean, people seem to remember him very fondly. Certainly, I do. And um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you, you might be aware that there's this um, lecture in, in in North Queensland that they call the Tony Rotondo Memorial Lecture, and that's after that. And, and mm. what's interesting about that is that you know, on the face of it, his history was fairly un- unremarkable. It's just that someone you know, decided at some point in time that he, I don't know, was someone who stood for something good and they, mm. they wanted to, to turn that into a lecture and a, a medal. So, so He clearly had a big impact on a lot of people for that to be the case. Yeah, look, a, a lot of people in a small community and then one or two dentists in that small community, particularly a guy called Dominic Ponty, um, uh, seized on that a little bit. He, he had a lot of patients that would come and visit him and, and, and talk fondly of dad and and um, and perhaps dad reputation, dad's reputation built uh, large for him, maybe maybe maybe, maybe larger than it um, should have been. I don't know, but but he was someone who wanted to uh, uh, start some education in North Queensland, and uh, mm. he later approached me and, and said, "Do you mind if we?" Uh, 
use your dad's name. And of course, I was really, um, you know, very excited about that. So, so the lecture itself has nothing to do with me, uh, except that, of course, it's named after my, my father. And uh, for me, that's a really um, nice thing. So was dentistry always in your blood? Obviously, it was in the family. Did you always want to become a dentist? I don't think so. I think um, up until my second last year of school, I probably uh, didn't want to do dentistry. And I, I didn't have while I liked my father very much, I didn't have a lot of exposure to his dental practice. Um, and at some point, I felt at the time quite independent of him. I decided that I wanted to do something where I um, you know, worked with people and used my hands. And uh, dentistry seemed to tick that box. And, 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 and that's why I decided to do it. But you know, God knows how much uh, subliminal influence um, you know, my, my father being a dentist had on me, I don't really know. Yeah, of course. Well, your memories of um, being in a family where your father was a dentist, were they positive memories? Like for the profession for him was a good thing and do you think that might have sent you that way? For sure. So he, um, you know, he, he enjoyed his work. Um, he enjoyed his, um, I don't know, I suppose his position in the local community. You know, he was kind of a for one of a better word, a respected elder or something. And, and um, mm. um, yeah, so, so generally my impression was that, that, that he really enjoyed it. So you're right, that, that must have been some sort of influence um, for me. Uh, even mm. though the actual dentistry that he did was something that I, I wasn't uh, exposed to a lot. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how these influences can subliminally you know, lead us a certain way and we don't even realise. So you said you're in North Queensland. Um, so you grew up in North Queensland. How was school and how did you how'd you find yourself at uni? Okay, so I went to a boarding school, a Catholic boarding school in um, uh, Brisbane called Mudgee College. Uh, so we would fly down uh, every year. Actually, I've got a funny story to tell with that. So uh, I was supposed to go to boarding school in, in grade eight uh, and I remember at the time my, my parents... Uh, they bought my school uniforms and uh, they bought my books. And at the last minute, they, they felt that I was too young to go and they didn't want to <laughs> on a plane and send me off. So they called the principal up and, and said, would it be okay if I came in grade nine? And the, the um, principal said, look, that, that's not something that can really happen. We, we can't reserve a, a place. You know, if he gives it up, then, then that's it. And um, anyway, the, the local archbishop or the Archbishop of Queensland at the time was a guy called Frank Rush who was the parish priest in Ingham, my hometown, for 15 years and, and he married mum and dad and dad used to treat all the clergy for free. So uh, he called the archbishop up who was a good friend of his and two days later uh, I was in the school in grade nine and, and, and that's not the funny part of the story. The funny part <laughs> of the story is that every every term from grade nine on, you know, we there would be a dozen kids from North Queensland that would arrive in Brisbane on a plane and uh, we'd hop in three or four cabs and go out to my boarding school. But whoever was in my cab had to take a, a detour and uh, we, the cab would stop outside this big old house and, and I'd jump out of the cab, knock on the door, and uh, someone would open the door and I'd hand them this brown paper bag and then I'd jump back in the car and uh, in the brown paper bag was a freshly caught frozen barramundi, which I would have to do with the Archbishop <laughs> every uh, every turn. Anyway, it's a bit of a, that was the payment. <laughs> it's a bit of an uh, Italian Catholic North Queensland story. This <laughs> <laughs> is quite something quite valuable that you were transporting there. I can imagine right. he would have appreciated that very much. <laughs> 
So, so you did start at the boarding school in. Sorry, he liked his Barra. Yeah, Yeah, I bet North Queensland Barra. It's pretty special. Um, So, you did start boarding school in year nine, was it? Yes. All right, and so went through school, and then you said about two years before you finished, you thought, all right, I am going to go towards dentistry. You studied at UQ dentistry. How did you find uni? Um, I loved uni. I had a fantastic time at uni. In, in fact, I probably didn't do very much work at uni. I was more of a social <laughs> animal, but um, you know, I had a wonderful time. I I enjoyed dental dental school, but I probably didn't excel at dental school. You know, I think my GPA was like somewhere between four and a half and five. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't mm. bad, but it wasn't exceptional. Um, yeah. Uh, so it seems to be quite common where you, you know you you get through university and then you find your passion later on and that's where you start to really excel when you when you dive into what you're actually passionate about. I think that's very true for me. Yeah. Yeah. So you you graduated UQ um, general dentist. How were your first couple of years? My first job was in the United Kingdom. So uh, four or okay. five of my colleagues hopped on a plane on the New Year's Eve that we finished dental school and. Um, uh, started work in the UK. So it was interesting because, you know, I mean, quite famously, dentistry in the United Kingdom at that point in time was fairly um, primitive and fairly sort of quick, I guess. There was a broad range of dental practices, some of which were, were really very bad and, and others of which, you know, were getting close to good, but <laughs> quite, quite making it. But um, yeah, so I went there. The first practice that I worked in was particularly primitive. I remember it was in an attic at the very top of a building and um, uh, there was a chair that was broken, so it was only lying down. It couldn't sit up, so I would have to step over the top of the chair to get to my seat uh, and I couldn't get out of my seat unless I either stepped over the patient or the patient wasn't uh, there. (laughs) And uh, I remember at that time we weren't using gloves, like gloves sort of came to... Uh, existence with the sort of whole HIV thing, which uh, happened a couple of years later. And, mm. um, and uh, all the sterilization that existed was sort of at, at that particular practice was cold sterilization. So I'd use some instruments, I'd put them yeah. in a Tupperware container with a cold sterilizing solution in them, and then I would pick them back out of that uh, container. So it's really, um, I don't know, so it's changed a lot. Retrospect, yeah. <laughs> Certainly changed a lot. Was it was it actually quite different to Australian um, dentistry at that time? Like the stand, yeah. like those standards. So okay, so so it was quite a shock. I, I remember um, Australian dentists saying uh, things like, if, "If if someone went to the United Kingdom and worked, that they would be reluctant to employ them when they came back because they felt that the yeah, was okay. a little bit too quick." And um, so, what drove you over to the UK early on? I think, like I said, I was a bit of a social animal and it was just something I wanted to do from a purely self-indulgent kind of travel, yeah. have, a, have an experience abroad uh, perspective. My dad, interestingly, did the same thing in the late 1940s. So I guess I'd, I'd heard that story and that might have uh, also influenced me a little bit. That would have been quite pioneering in the 1940s, I would think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you enjoy that experience and do you think that added to who you are now? For sure. I mean, it was great. Um, uh, dentistry was, uh, I suppose, uh, quicker in that environment. So um, I think you had to work out what compromises you were prepared to make. And um, mm. uh, I think you had to 
think hard about uh, what you were doing to to make it work. And and, and I think it was uh, not a completely bad system in that a lot of people received uh, some you know, very well priced uh, dentistry, but it was certainly uh, open to abuse. So for me, that the, the challenge was to to do something reasonable within the timeframes that that we had, and and I think that was quite possible. Mm. Certainly, I saw a lot of things that and got a lot of experience that that maybe I, I wouldn't have gotten uh, if I was in um, in Australia at that time. Sounds like the um, the story a lot of people have if they've gone and worked in the NHS. It's quite different to say a private practice job in Australia at this current climate. That's for sure. Did you have a good mentor when you got out of uni? Probably a, a few different people at different times. So that the first practice that I described in the United Kingdom, I only last lasted in for a couple of months. And uh, mm. second practice I worked in was a much much nicer practice, and it was run by a, an Australian guy called Bill Roberts, uh, who passed away about a decade or so ago. Uh, but I mean, terrific guy, really nice fellow who um, I suppose helped me find the right. Balance. I mean, he was really yeah. an ethical uh, practitioner who was, um, I don't know, had a, had a very practical and ethical interpretation of what, what, what could happen in, in that, that system. Mm. So, I can imagine you'd burn out quite quick if you were exposed to someone who was the opposite of that. For sure. And there were, it, w- it would demoralize there were you. Yeah. Plenty of opposites. And, and, and there were people, as you said, that, that kind of burned out. And then I guess after that, when I was working back in Brisbane, um, I worked in a um, uh, for a health fund for a period. It was one of the the first, I suppose, health fund type clinics, and uh, it was the Queensland Teachers Health Union, and that was run by uh, an exceptionally ethical dentist, a guy called Arthur Tui, and um, and I think I got a lot to to be grateful for for him because he, I, I think I, I was reasonably competent dentist at that time and and he would uh get me to do some uh some some of the more tricky cases i mean you know, they probably weren't too tricky in retrospect but i certainly felt that they were sort of demanding. it's all relative yeah that's yeah. right it, <laughs> and um and so he was really encouraging and supportive and and there i probably got to do some uh you know i won't say larger cases but cases in that sort of moderate range uh, that I, I probably wouldn't have had access to before, and, and um, you know he was good at, at sort of guiding me through that process. So so he was um, definitely a, a big influence. And interestingly, he's ninety three now, and I, I'm, I'm his dentist, so I get to see him yeah. uh, fairly often, which is really nice. <laughs> that is nice to keep in touch with those mentors. They certainly shape you. You said you um, you had a um, I guess an affinity from it from the start. So you, I guess you had good good hands for dentistry. I think I think you're right. I, th- I think my my hands were pretty good. And and it's it's funny. Um, uh, people often say to me, "You've got good hands," and, and what I what I think is that I've got good eyes. Um, I ah. think that um, my hands are always going to be limited, but 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 by what I can see, uh, and, and that's right. I think that, I've been lucky enough to train myself to see a lot of detail that um, not everyone sees, and, um, and and you can't do something with your hands unless you can see it first. And um, so, probably over a um, maybe a ten or fifteen year period, um, I don't know. I guess I, maybe I, I trained myself to to look hard 
at things. That makes a lot of sense. And I remember hearing the first time someone said you can't treat what you can't see. Diagnosis and treatment planning is so much more, well, not, not more important, but it's the foundation. You can't have anything else without having correct diagnosis or everything you do is wrong. And you can't treat something that if you can't understand it. For instance, if you're not seeing wear patterns. The problem or, is or what to look for. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any advice for graduates? Do you think, um, and we'll get a lot into advice for graduates, a real key um, theme that I like to bring through my podcast. But in the in the concept of not being able to see or missing things, are there things that spring to mind that young dentists or inexperienced dentists miss? Well, uh, I'll... I'll, I'll I don't know whether this is going to answer your question completely, but it, but it's on the on that the same uh, idea of having having a good vision and being able to see. I, I think a problem that uh, a lot of people have is they don't uh, see uh, detail, and, and I often say to people that uh, if your interest is in restorative dentistry, that you you need to become a student of morphology because all we all, all our restorative dentist really does is. Um, uh, alter the morphology of teeth. So whether you're doing a little filling or a crown or whether that's, uh, you know, becoming six anterior teeth that you're working on or replacing an entire occlusion, it, it's it's about altering the shape of a, a tooth or a number of teeth or all of someone's teeth. And so to be able to do that really well, you need to understand really well how teeth are shaped. And I think in a, in a digital world, it may appear that you don't need to understand morphology as well because the computer can do it all. But I think Mm. the more you understand that detail, the more you'll um, understand how to manipulate the the tools, whether they're computers or CAD CAM machines Mm. or printers, um, to to get sort of really nice results. So so from the outset, uh, looking closely at natural teeth always and um, uh, tuning into the little details and uh, listening to what people point out um, you know, that that for me is a kind of a, a lifelong learning process. It never it never stops. Mm. That's really interesting. I think it's something um, I. It's not a failure of the uni at all, but I, I don't feel I fully under. We did morphology so early that I don't feel that that was really ingrained enough, and we didn't do many wax ups, and we didn't, um, you know, make our own crowns or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I think it's something that was definitely missing and something um, that can certainly help. Something I'm looking to do and haven't actually done is a waxing course um, or something along those lines to help me get, you know, my head around that a bit better. So that's, that's good advice. That's a really good idea. Uh, a waxing course is a great way to start to become familiar with morphology and um, I, I think you're right I think universities do miss that a lot and um, probably it's because the people that are uh, running those programs aren't aren't as restoratively restoratively oriented as they could perhaps perhaps be mm. to focus on uh, biology and prevention and uh, and that's great because we should, and we should be sort of medical people but um, Sometimes it comes at the expense of, of something else that's important. That's right. Well, well bringing someone who's uh, essentially, you know, just the public to become a dentist within four years or five years as an undergraduate degree is a pretty big step. So I, I never, I, I always think, look, they do a good job within their confines, but it's very much confined. And a graduate needs to recognize that and recognize their learning doesn't stop. Um, and I think anyone listening to this recognizes that too. So you had a, you had a um, an affinity for the restorative side pretty early on, by the sounds of it. How did that then evolve into becoming a prosthodontist? 
I think the next step for me was uh, I, 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 at a fairly young age, I organised a couple of courses with a German dental technician who uh, was in Brisbane and, um, and that gave me some exposure to some uh, really great dentists of that period. Two, two standout people would have been Jerry Sheesh, who's a prosthodontist from Louisiana, well, originally from Louisiana, now I think he's in Georgia. He's a French guy and a mm-hmm. dental technician or a ceramist called Klaus Mudetis. Um, most people have heard of Willie Geller. I mean, most of the dental technicians in the world would have heard of uh, Klaus Mudetis. He, he would have been uh, one of the two real pioneers of that time. And, and, and they, those were guys that were capable of doing extraordinary work. So I, I saw some really extraordinary things and, and I suddenly realised that, uh, you know, these crowns that we were doing didn't look have to look like white blobs. They could actually look like teeth. And so I think, you know, let's say four or five or six years into my career, I started to uh, obsess over, you know, over that, you know, trying trying to, to make teeth look better. And you didn't have to remember it was sort of pre-internet. So, you know, I'd look at a book or a... Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, an advertisement from a porcelain manufacturer. Those were the only uh, resources in terms of seeing photographs of um, nice work. So, uh, so, so that generated an interest. Uh, then I started uh, my own dental practice, and um, I suppose when your income depends on what you're doing, then maybe you start to become more more motivated uh, again. And then, it, um, and then actually, my my father died when I was 27. And mm. I went from a, a life where uh, I was just this spoiled kid running around doing exactly what I wanted to, to someone <laughs> actually be a little bit responsible <laughs> and mm. work mm. and uh, know that there was no one there to look after me. So, so that meant that suddenly I had to do a bunch of work for, for some years. And um, I think after about three years of that, I just wanted an excuse to run away. And, um, uh, you know, doing a prosthodontic program gave me a... Mm. Uh, uh, a reason to escape for a little while. So you owned your own practice before, as a general dentist, before doing the specialist program. Correct. Uh, yeah. Would you say you found yourself burnt out? No, I, I the, the opposite. You know, I was really, I, I might have been a little bit burnt out from the family responsibilities that I didn't have before my father died, uh, but I wasn't burnt out from dentistry. I was really enjoying that, and I was enjoying watching my practice uh, evolve and um, and I did have a uh, more of a, an interest in restorative dentistry than anything else and and, and I think many general dentists uh, like myself at that time probably wonder why a prosthodontist might be better than them so I'm, I'm sitting there looking at my crowns thinking you know I've got good impressions I do good preps you know what is it that's so different about my crown compared to the local prosthodontists crowns and um and of course, it's not the crown. It's more about a way of looking at a at a case. Um, but still, mm. you wonder those things, and, and you know that there's a there are some big gaps in your knowledge. And so, um, for me, you know, the idea of becoming a prosthodontist and uh, knowing everything—that's a joke, by the way. <laughs> prosthodontists don't know everything, but <laughs> there's, 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 there's this notion that. Um, <laughs> you might be able to learn so much more. Yeah. So, so it sort of made sense for me to try and do something. So then I think it was in the early 1990s, I applied to a few programs and you know, got into one and, and then did that. Mm. So you travelled early on and then you travelled again. You did your um, pros program at UCLA. How was that? Good. I mean, I, I think when you hear those words, UCLA, it, it sounds like a, a really great university 
<laughs> and once again, um, if you talk to people that want to do prosthodontics and people that have completed a prosthodontic program, you'll see very quickly that there are two different, I don't know, notions about what happens in a prosthodontic program. Someone that wants to enter a pros program is, uh, is wanting to be mentored, is, is wanting to exit that program being immediately great somehow mm-hmm. and is thinking yeah, very completely much changed. They do that, yeah. that's what they'll get you know it's but someone that's just done a prosthetic pros, pros program knows that um you know there is no mentor you don't get the support that you're uh hoping for you, you don't come out uh great <laughs> but but what you do go through is um a program of learning where a series of hurdles are, are put in front of you and and you, you probably couldn't uh, acquire that knowledge by yourself. I mean, you might be able to, but it would be very difficult. So, so UCLA was like that. I mean, in some respects, uh, it was a letdown because you're expecting, uh, you know, to have that 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 mentor. And in fact, I went to UCLA because there was a guy called John Sorensen there at the time, who is now a, a good friend of mine. But he uh, he announced that he would be leaving the day that I arrived. So that was a little <laughs> for me. So my my ven- mentor vanished. Uh, almost immediately. So, so there were some disappointments, but in the end, there, there was a lot of hard work. And UCLA is in a big city with a lot of uh, good dentists, so it, there was a lot of exposure to you know good good education. But it, it wasn't it wasn't fancy. It, it was just just hard work, really. Yeah, and that's the story I tend to hear from most people, either in or through specialist programs. Is you get what you put in, and um, you know it doesn't necessarily turn you into someone great unless you continue to focus and and take yourself there through that program um obviously you've come a long way since then do you think you had that you had all that attention to detail and precision then or has that evolved much more in your later years i think i think i probably had it then uh actually because i was really influenced by by some of those earlier people that i'd had exposure to and and i remember when i did my program. I, I'd been a general practitioner for ten years, and I, I knew that when I came out of the program, I, I needed to be able to let people know what I did, so that hopefully someone would refer me some work. So I thought the best thing for me to do would be to try and complete my cases to a re- reasonably high standard, and that maybe I could put together some sort of talk about the cases that I did in my program. So we came, and we had to do all of our own lab work, and and this for me was a it was a huge learning experience. One of the the best learning experiences of my entire life. So, mm. so I set about doing some ceramic courses outside of the, the university. So I did one with a guy called Robert Winter, who was a really excellent uh, ceramist and prosthodontist. Uh, I did a uh, ceramics course with Klaus Mordetis, the German guy I was talking about, and a couple of others along the way. So the, the, the lab work that I was doing, I was trying to do you know, to the, to the best level I could. I mean, it, it took me hours to make one crown because I didn't have mm. those those skills. But it, it might have taken me eight hours to, to, to make a crown. But they ended up, you know, for, for someone at my level, they, they were, uh, you know, it was, it was reasonably good work. So mm. it was, yeah. you know, I, I think that's true and it's probably the feedback I got from other people in the in the program. Yeah, so, so I think... You know, if, if there was a place where I developed that attention to detail, that that was the place, and doing that lab work, uh, that was yeah, okay. And do you think you learn a lot of your morphology from that lab work as well? For sure, yeah, no doubt yeah. about it. For sure, I learned about 
color from that guy Bob Bob Winter and and Klaus yep. and um, uh, shape, you know, for, also probably from those two guys and, and doing my own lab work and and I, I think I was probably, uh, I mean, without trying to oversell myself, I, I was probably one of the first people in the world. There might have been two or three others, but to to make composites start to look a little bit more real yeah. and. and and the other people, people like, and I don't mean to compare myself to the mm. other people because they're, they're much greater than me. There's like a guy called Lorenzo Vanini and Didier Dici. I mean, they probably came from a more restorative background. But for me, um, I had learnt everything from dental technicians and from doing ceramics. And I was just trying to apply that same uh, information um, to using, you know, with, with respect to using composite resins. Mm. That was exactly my next question. You, you feel that that has brought, been brought forward into your composite work. And I imagine you, your advice would be the same thing around morphology and shape to allow graduates to do better composite work. For sure. um, do you have any advice for that kind of thing? It's a bit uh, off a tangent, but for, for composite work, um, taking those steps forward. So, for instance, obviously learning shape and, and potentially doing courses on that kind of thing. Any other advice that springs to mind? A few things. I mean, you know, doing those different composite courses that different people hold, that, that, that I mean, they're essentially exercises in shape and colour, so they're good things mm. to do. Um, the other thing I would say is photograph your work because you will inevitably be your own worst and best critic. <laughs> yeah. You know, photographs are... Um, you know, hor- horribly truthful critics. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, you you see them with different eyes when you see a photo. For sure, you see the, the the problems that you don't see clinically. You see in the photograph. So, mm. you um, look at something clinically. You think you're a hero. You take a photograph of it. You have a close look at it, and you realise what a mug you you really are. Yeah. And um, yeah, I've experienced that. <laughs> every, everyone has. Uh, everyone has. Um, and, and even now, you know, I, I see, uh, you know, I do four cases, um, three of them I think are going to be great. I look at the photos and I'm a little bit disappointed and, and then one I get a little bit lucky with and it looks okay. Yeah, yeah. So photography seems to be a passion of yours. Did your clinical photography come first or your, you do a bit of hobby landscape photography as well? Which came first? I think clinical photography first. I, I think I was always a little bit interested, you know, as like an amateur photography, like I was always, you know, trying to take a slightly more interesting photo, but it was probably a passing interest. And so the clinical photography uh, I became quite obsessed with, like the the first question I would always ask those early dental technicians that I that I worked with was what camera they were using, what flash they were using, the same questions that everyone asked me. Uh, and, and so I became, you know, obsessed with taking a good photograph clinically, and then, and then I'd just gone a few holidays. I've probably got Facebook to thank for my interest in landscape, yeah. Because I'd, I'd take a few photos on a trip, I'd put them up. People would say a few nice things, and, and then I would try to take better photos on the next. <laughs> and so yeah. you become your own worst, en- worst enemy. But, but, but it is a really nice interest that i've been lucky enough to develop it's probably my only true hobby and would you say yeah that is your hobby at the moment it's something that it drives you or takes you tra- traveling or love it yeah is it a big part yeah drives, um 
it drives my family's travel quite a bit, which is a little bit selfish. Yeah. It's still <laughs> to some nice places. So Yeah, gotta to go to a nice landscape to get yeah. the, the good photo. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, show, that sounds... I'll show some photos to my wife. I'll say, look, you know, look at this place, it's amazing, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, why don't we go there and um, you know, surely the can it will, will let me go. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good way to do it. It's perfect, really. Yeah. <laughs> so your photography um is skills how did you gain most of those skills because your photography i've always noticed or your presentation of cases online is is exceptional it's artistic it's um there's precision in everything you do um something i also notice and i commend you for is you always talk about and name the um the lab or the uh, ceramist who you work with as well and i think that's something that's really important because they have such a big impact on our work if we're using a ceramist someone like yourself you can get your outcomes because of that so like the two-part question i guess the um you you're the aesthetic or the the art side do you feel that that comes from your photography your hobby photography and into your dentistry the photo question first. I think I've always had an, an, a kind of a, a loose interest in graphics and design, and I think all of those things. You know, actually, if I look at all of those things, uh, uh, graphic design, photography, um, and dentistry, um, the hmm. one thing that they probably all have in common is this whole art and science idea. The the idea that there are some uh, artistic elements and some scientific elements. Certainly dentistry, at least the sort of dentistry that I practice, is, is very much uh, tied up with that. If I look at photography, it's all, also the same. There's some artistic elements mm. where you know, your composition, for example, that's not science, but, you know, uh, um, the lens you use, the aperture and the speed and the, the sensor, that's all science. So, so once again, it's a nice combination of both of those things. And then... Um, I think with graphics, it, it's a little bit the same. So yeah. with dental photography, you know, I, I like to present my cases in a lifelike but pretty way. Uh, so I, I, I would like to think and I'm happy to be criticised, but I'd like to <laughs> That certainly comes through yeah, in your presentation. I'd like to think that, I mean, you know, some people use uh, illumination that's a little bit too soft and, and the images... Um, you know, it's almost a way of, of hiding your dentistry and then other people uh, probably aren't, um, you know, using harsher light and they have beautiful work but it doesn't maybe look its, its best. I'm, I'm trying to get that, that balance right where people can see my work where I'm not trying to hide it but it looks nice, nice too. And so mm. you know, maybe that's something that I've had. A, it's not difficult to do but it's probably something I've had a bit of time to uh, develop, and then it's nice if your images look somewhat consistent. Uh, you know, from certainly within the one case, but maybe across all of your cases. And and I guess when I'm pre, you know putting together a few images uh, for for something online, I'm I, I, I actually enjoy um, mm. placing or orienting them in a way that somehow looks you know, attractive and, 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 and I think I'm hoping that it might make for a, a better message or a better lesson or, or something mm. as well. well. It certainly tells a story and if it's aesthetic, we, it, more people look at it, it's, it's a good way to do it. I've always been very impressed by, by what I see in that regard. The second thing you mentioned and I don't want to skip it is um, that, that I like to mention the um, ceramists and technicians that, that I work with mm. and, and um, 
you know, I just think that's only fair. Like um, mm. uh, those, it, it is, you know, restorative dentistry is often, prosthodontics in particular, is often truly a, a collaboration and, um, and um, you know, certainly with respect to uh, Sabi in Perth, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we're lucky enough to have a really great collaboration and, and um, you know, I just learn so much from Sabi every year. I probably learn more from dental technicians um, than I do from dentists and, and of all the dental technicians I've learnt the most from Sabi and um, and his work is extraordinary. He puts his heart and soul into every case and, and, and um, uh, he makes me look good every day. So um, <laughs> I couldn't couldn't not acknowledge him uh, or, and the other people that I work with. Of course, uh, and that's quite admirable, and it, but it's absolutely right. Like they they do create that the beautiful final product where as a prosthodontist you allow it to happen and they create that as well. So it, it is a team. I think that, that's really good. Um, so you said they're someone who really teaches you a lot. In what ways do you feel you're still learning around that, would you say? Well, in the very beginning let's say when I was working like in the late 80s at the beginning of my career I remember just uh, at that health fund that I was working with there was a lab uh, right next door and I was working with a ceramist that I worked with for many many years ago called Mark Therrien and um, I would often get ask him to look at my preps and say you know how could I improve hmm. this and um, so from the very beginning I learned a lot about tooth preparations about uh, you know areas that I was missing, places that I could improve where I wasn't reducing enough tooth structure, uh, where I was reducing too much. Um, so, so, so immediately at that point, I was learning a lot uh, from them. And then you could ask why, you know, why do you need more space in this area and why do you need more space in that area and why can't we do it like this and why can't we do it like that? Uh, then I think, um, you know, those lessons uh, – on shape and colour, you know, they, they all came from uh, either dental technicians or prosthodontists with a uh, uh, really significant interest in, um, in shape and colour. And then with uh, Sabi, um, you know, every day there's, you know, every, every case is different and uh, every day uh, we're seeing problems. So we'll... Um, you know, fabricate some provisionals or, or try something in and, and I'll see some problems and we'll take some photographs and we'll get on the phone together or what, maybe we'll exchange a few texts and I'll say, you know, what can we do about this or what can we do about that? And he'll say, well, maybe if I alter the, the, the shape of the tooth in this way or that way, that could kind of resolve that problem. So um, so communication is a really big thing. It's been repeated over many, many years with, with different people and um, – and, and maybe that's when you start to um, see and understand uh, some of the details that other people maybe aren't seeing or understand, mm. or younger people maybe aren't seeing or understand. I don't know. Build up because yeah, yeah. So, so that um, cultivating that relationship with your lab tech obviously can really improve your own own dentistry. For sure. Um, do you have any advice? And I'm, I'm not sure because I know you have, you know, these really strong relationships with your lab technicians, but a lot of dentists graduate into an associateship where they're, um, they don't have as much choice potentially. Um, what, what is your advice on cultivating the, um, the lab tech relationship and getting the most from it, particularly if it's not someone you can just go and see so they're remote? It's, 
difficult because um, all relationships take time. You know, there's no such thing as a relationship without time. And the more time you have, the more evolved the relationship becomes. And, you know, some of those relationships are going to lead to a really good place and, and other of those relationships are going to kind of fall short for whatever reason. Maybe it could be the dentist's fault, it could be the technician's fault, it might be no, no one's fault because relationships are dynamic, you know, they depend on two different people. But so I, I guess uh, the first thing is let's say you're in that situation where you don't have as much control uh, over the lab that, that you're sending work to. I think the first thing to do is to talk. Um, I, I don't like text so much i actually hate typing and paper <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and i just think that texts and emails are really easy to interpret like i know that if if i get a, a job from the lab back and i don't like it and i send the lab card back you know there'll be a few short words that i've written underneath it you know w- which probably wouldn't be the nicest thing to hear it for, for a technician mm. that's slaved over a, a particular case so I think that'll work a whole lot better if you pick up the phone. Uh, so uh, the first thing I'd say is uh, try to develop a relationship with whoever it is that you're working with. The chances are they'll really appreciate it and the chances are that they'll send you better work because of it. The other thing that I would say is photograph your work and send the technician or ceramist that you're working with photographs of, of their work because, uh, once again, those guys uh, slave over something in the lab and they never get anything back they never get to see how their yeah. work looks in the mouth um, they never get any feedback they can't improve without the feedback and if, if you're the one guy of the 10 people that they're working with but sending back the odd photo uh, I, I can promise you uh, you'll get um, uh, you know I, I don't know more more effort from from that person that you're working with uh, so that's the first thing and then once again, it's just about pursuing individuals that you think you could work with and, and just testing those relationships and seeing how they go. Yeah, yeah, no, that's excellent advice. And it, I guess it all comes back photo, photo, uh, photography and photographing your own work it lets you assess it. But if, if your, clinic, uh, your technician doesn't actually get to see their own work, it's hard for them to self-analyze. Yeah. Um, so that, that's an excellent um, piece of advice, obviously. It's like um, a chef and, and not seeing anyone enjoy your... <laughs> meals yeah yeah not tasting your own your own food that's a really good point um so so with your career you've obviously come to be known as someone who well one of the best one of the best dentists or prosthodontists in australia i would say and some of your composite work in particular um is absolutely immaculate the background for the dpi everyone knows that background um you did that with your hands and composite and for many of us me included i can't even understand (laughs) how that's possible although i have actually seen the step-by-step photos (laughs) tell us about the journey that um that got you there like what do you think were the pivotal things that you've done over your career to get you to this point um Actually, the first thing I need to address is that that idea of um, being the best. Like, um, I think that I have um, that there, there are particular skills that I have that are, that are really very good that might be occasionally worthy of that that uh, description. For example, my, my composite work—I put a lot of energy into that over a long period of time. But um, mm. you know, there are probably lots of other areas where I'm not so strong at. Um, I'm not great at. Um, pathology and pharmacology, I, um, uh, you know, that there are 
a whole host of other areas that hmm. within prosthodontics that I yeah, might yeah. lack a little interest in. So um, you're certainly humble as well, I, no, well which I'm I think a lot of people. Are. <laughs> I definitely don't don't have the whole thing covered. So yeah, yeah. Um, but but with respect to what you were saying, uh, I think probably we've already talked about it a little bit. Like I, I um, mm, mm. Um, fairly early, probably starting just before my pros program and, and then maybe it was really consolidated within my pros program. I, I started to become quite obsessed with making teeth look like teeth and, and looking and copying and looking and copying and photographing and looking and copying and photographing and looking and copying and listening to someone else speak and then looking and copying and, and repeating those processes over and over again until I got better and better at it and, and looking at my uh, my own results and uh, cr- critiquing them and uh, thinking, oh, God, if I could only have put a couple of scratches in those few places or got rid of those couple of scratches, that would have looked so much better again. So, so I think it's um, being interested in it which i was um you know from a relatively early period and then being put in an environment where that was somehow nurtured and encouraged a little bit and then um being interested in it enough to pursue it i I think most people um Mm. probably just aren't as interested in it i I think you are because I, i saw those um you know those uh, <laughs> aesthetic diagrams that you did with that that case, and, and you can only do that if you're looking at something and analysing it and thinking about it. And and I probably did similar things in different ways at mm, stages mm. throughout my career, and and it's the, that constant repetition and trying harder that. Well, to get to a level where you're at, the you know it's like that. People think not instant success, but you, you come out with these amazing cases. It's not instant. It's 40 or 30 years of, of, of hard work. It's, it's self-assessment. It's um, little micro-improvements that get you there. So um, it's certainly impressive, but we've got to remember the background behind it and the, and the effort, I'm sure, and the dedication to it as well um, as a long period of time. I think one thing that's interesting is that with um – you know, with the internet and that that kind of explosion of you know, dental photographs that are all over people's Instagram and Facebook pages uh, these days, that access to that information has has never been better. And, and I see people, um, I see young people doing uh, really good work um, much more rapidly. So I, I think that that learning curve that I described before. Um, I think it's um, you know I think people are getting to the to, to an end point in a, in a quicker period of time now just because of the availability of um, information. Yeah, you were saying you used to refer to the you know the leaflet that might come or or a few little pieces of information here and there. Nowadays, we can get thousands of images instantly. In fact, we get bombarded with it, and some sometimes you could argue too much. Um, you know, making some people feel a bit bad about their own work, which is which is not the, how it should be. But um, it's definitely out there, and it's definitely allowing people to see what's possible yeah. um, and take those steps to improvement. Do you right. think? Is um. Uh, that it's a good good point that it, that it can have two effects. One effect is um, to provide a, a source of inspiration, which which you know everyone needs. But the other thing is it can be demoralising, and um, and I'm certainly guilty of not uh, showing my 
uh, failures and worst cases on, online and um, uh, that, that, that's a problem. I have to say that one, one thing I really like about uh, DPR in that Australian environment is that it, that it is a place uh, where it seems to me that, that people can uh, um, talk about more real-world issues and, mm. Um, mm. and uh, I think that's really important and, and I don't think I'm helping that at all but I, but I, but I do think it's really, really important. Yeah, it certainly is important. Um, those communities or having any kind of community around you is so important for support. Even if it's your own close friends in dentistry, you really do need that um, not to feel isolated. I think that's really, really important thing. You brought up something um, I'd love to actually ask you a little bit about. So, you, we see a lot of your exceptional cases. That, that's great and, and it's just exceptional work. You mentioned sometimes you take a few photos of, or a few cases, sorry, and um, some you're not quite as happy about. Um what proportion of your work are we seeing, would you say? Oh, look, I, I tend to post something once a month um, mm-hmm. or so. So I guess what you're seeing is the best case that I've delivered that month. Uh, so um, let's say that, I don't know, uh, 15 cases are completed uh, in, a, in a month, then, then I guess it's one in 15 or something. Tell us about your your experience with failure because we all have failure and, and I think it's important for people to understand, you know, someone like yourself still have situations where, you know, they're not up to potentially your standard or, or, or what have you. Tell us a bit about your experience with that. Okay. Um, th- th- there are different types of failures um, uh, and, and maybe I'll start from the less severe to the more severe but... Uh, you know, one type of failure is that I'm looking at a case that I, I think was going to be fantastic for posting and, um, uh, you know, there are a couple of dings in the composite in the wrong places and so I decided to yeah, yeah. post that. Well, that's not a failure. That's just um, no, definitely not. being vain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to bring up soon um, a perfectionist streak per- perhaps. Yep, maybe, something like that. And um, then maybe the next type of failure might be, a case that you you kind of knowingly maybe didn't do to the highest standard because you knew that you could keep the patient uh, happy um, with a lesser uh, result. Um, I guess as long as that case does keep the patient happy and um, fulfills the requirements of health and, and function, then, then that's probably not a failure either. That's just you're not putting as much effort in as you could have and that's kind of about you. And the next type of failure is where um, maybe the patient's not happy with the result and you are. Uh, that's really difficult to manage because mm. um, uh, that, that, that maybe that's the, the most difficult one because um, uh, you kind of feel like you've done your best uh, but and you feel that objectively the case is really very good. Uh, but you're not seeing things the same way that the patient is. Um, but that's one of the hardest things to manage. So, so then you have to start saying to the patient, well, um, I, I, the only way I can help you now is to just do what you tell me to do. And the problem with that is that um, you know, I don't necessarily agree with it. And um, so then you have to ask yourself whether it's something that you can do, do or not or so, so that, that, that's a really tricky one. I don't have a great solution to it. Um, no. and the, other, the other failures are where things break or don't work or um, don't come uh, together the way both you and the patient were hoping. 
I think that, that, that it's true that, that the more you know and the more careful you are, the less of those you will experience. Uh, but it's inevitable that you will experience those failures because you know um, that's what happens in in dentistry. Things fail for one reason or another. Mm. I guess then it's about managing the patient and and maybe and and yourself. You know, am I going to kind of redo some stuff for for free? And I mean, typically I would do that if it was within a certain time frame and. Um, and have another go at thing. And, and then the, the other thing I guess you've got to hope is that you inform the patient uh, from the outset of the, the likelihood of those failures so that so that they're okay when and if they do happen. I mean, no, no one's ever completely mm. okay, but, um, but yeah. Yes, of course. No one wants to go through dentistry twice. No. Um, <laughs> not many of our patients particularly want to be in our chair um, either. So. <laughs> yeah, <It's inevitable. laughs> that's exactly right. So, um, yeah, would you say you're a perfectionist? Um, it's really weird. I think I'm a perfectionist in some areas and, and not in others. Like, um, I think, um, there are some things I can't let go of and have to do to a, a, a fairly high standard, but uh, I am really good at, you know, if, if I do finish work at five or six o'clock at night, I'm pretty good most of the time at walking out the door and, and not really mm. thinking or worrying about it at all. And, um, um, uh, it's interesting, like, um, you know, you know, I, I might worry about a, a scratch on some composite resin, but um, I, I'm not really good at doing the washing up at home and uh, <laughs> wardrobe. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, so, so ask your wife. <laughs> um, but not quite obsessive compulsive, I don't think. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so with um, with dentistry and and what you do, obviously aesthetics is a big part of what we see for you. What what keeps you motivated? What keeps you passionate and and producing these exceptional outcomes? I just love it. You know, at fifty seven, I, I I just love it. I, like I'm 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 um I keep wondering when my the quality of my dentistry is going to to drop off. Don't think it is at the moment, and I I, I hope to keep it going for you know at least another five or ten years. So. <laughs> I have no doubt you've got at least that, at least that in, in you. Maybe that's um, a challenge for me. You know, maybe it's I just want to keep on doing the next job better than the last one. That that process of um, self self assessment that started early on will continue pushing you through, perhaps. Maybe. So you also um, you give back a lot to the community with education. You started education, and pretty early on, you said you had some of um, the best people in the world. It, it's not necessarily giving back. <laughs> Uh, all those times, well, yeah, guess, yeah, yeah, more than others, I guess. So, <laughs> but anyway, tell us about your your journey with CPD, and and um, we'll start with the CEO Dental. It's a company um, that you run with Michael Mendicos, um and do some live events. Um, tell us about that because it had a very different beginning. Very interesting story. So, um, I guess in about nineteen ninety eight, nineteen ninety nine, it was soon after. Both Michael and I had returned home after um, our prosthodontic programs and, as you might remember, it was the very beginning of the internet. And um, mm. uh, Michael, um, this is a, a really weird and interesting story, but in, in about 1999, uh, six of the ten largest pornographic sites in the world were run out of Brisbane, Australia. Really? <laughs> One of um, Michael's accountants was the accountant for two or three of these guys, and 
<laughs> they were making ridiculous amounts of money and, and this guy said to Michael, listen, you should um, get into this internet thing and, um, you know, maybe do something in dentistry. And so uh, he approached me and said, uh, look, why don't we put a couple of our lectures uh, online and see if we can, you know, build some sort of educational site. And then I said to him, well, why would we, you know, no one wants to listen to our lectures. Why don't we tap a few of the people you know, uh, overseas on the shoulder and see if they'll um, uh, be involved. So um, we found someone who could uh, actually or, or said that they could um, uh, put together a live lecture. And, and at that point, we were all using analog slides. So we had to scan people's slides and had to somehow uh, film them and then coordinate the slides with their uh, audio and video and, and yeah. developed with this person a kind of a, I suppose, a, a way of doing that, which is very difficult at the time given the, um, uh, you know, the amount of data that could travel through the lines at, at that particular period in time. So anyway, we, we put together a site. Uh, we actually produced the first live lectures in dentistry online in the world. Um, and um, we probably had uh, 20 or 30 people from overseas, quite quite famous people uh, who mm. sort of helped us produce a few lectures to put online. And, and we operated on a subscription uh, model, but the problem was that at that time uh, no one much was interested in subscribing to, to watch a, a lecture online in dentistry. It's a little bit different now. Anyway, yeah, way too ahead of your time. Yeah, as I said, before, <laughs> a little bit too much. And um, so Michael and I really persisted with this idea. We put a lot of energy into it. We drove our respective partners and wives mad. And, and after that, <laughs> we'd, we'd spent a bunch of money and uh, not much money was coming in. And um, uh, we just kind of let it slide, really. We, we'd sort mm, of out. Mm. And then a year or two after that, Michael said to me, maybe we should, uh, you know, do a few lectures ourselves and see if we can generate a little bit of cash and pay down some of this debt. And, um, <laughs> we did that and uh, um, and I guess that, that's kind of what CEO Dental is now. So we, we uh, the first thing we did was we organised a, a couple of two- and three-day lectures and, and then we put together the mini-residency in prosthodontics, which is still going now. Um, and then later a mini-residency in implant dentistry and a, a few other bits and pieces that we uh, that we do. All right, so so there's a mini residency in implant dentistry already. Uh, we've run it for we ran it for three years and we stopped last year because uh, you know it was uh, like the, the mini residency in prosthodontics. It, you know, it, it pretty much books up a year in advance every year, but the dentistry one there was less interest in. Uh, so uh, I think we're going to reinvent that as a series of modules that people can take uh, individually rather than one nine-day program like the mini-residency in prosthodontics. So at the moment, uh, the mini-residency in implant dentistry is in a state of evolution, I guess. Yeah, okay. Well, that would be interesting to hear the where that ends up. Uh, you, you guys in the early days got a lot of famous people, um, you know, with CEO Dental when you're attempting to do the online thing and, and nowadays you've refined it but you're still getting some some big names out to Australia. You did that early on in your career as well. Do you think that's a really important thing to get that input, you know, outside of our Australian colleagues? Yeah, for sure. Um, the world's a big place and... Um, uh, I, th I think in Australia that the standards of dentistry are really very high and there's, there's a lot of great people to 
to listen to. Uh, but the world is a, a, a big place and our access to it is becoming easier and easier. So, uh, you know, why, why wouldn't you seek information from, uh, yeah, from, from outside? That, yeah. That's fundamental. And, and I think it's what people do more and more and more. Yeah, definitely. And with um, social media, we're getting exposed to a lot, a lot more. It's incredible. For um, for graduate dentists or students, graduates, early career dentists, um, obviously you've had a big impact on the the CPD side of things. What do you think graduates are missing, and what do you think graduates should really focus on in their first couple of years? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I think start with getting the basics right, like. Um, being able to anaesthetise people comfortably um, and properly. Um, uh, having good vision is really important. I think I see a lot of people find dentistry really difficult because they have a lot of trouble isolating a, a tooth, and I don't necessarily mean with rubber dam. It can be, it can be mm-hmm. with cotton rolls and mirrors and retractors, but you know, just put yourself in the best place to visualise and, and see what you're doing. Um, Try to do every task well. Like personally, it's kind of weird, but I get as much uh, of a kick out of doing an occlusal composite as I do out of you know, placing an implant in a you know, to, to replace a missing central incisor. So mm-hmm. try mm-hmm. to to do every task reasonably well. I think is a good thing to do. I think that you know now there is the potential to evolve really quickly. But I think it's wrong to try to evolve too quickly because I think you can find yourself doing things that uh, look simple online when you've seen a photograph or two or three. Uh, so just tell us some specifics about that. Like, are you thinking implants, for instance? Um, are you thinking of full mouth rehab? Implants, other things. Really, um, because I think it's really easy to to make a mess of implants. So um, if I think of my own particular journey in, in implant dentistry. Um, you know, it started with a PROS program and, and, and learning a lot about implants in general, specifically the restorative aspects of implants. Um, and then I would attend, you know, every surgery, you know, probably for a five or six year period uh, to watch uh, the surgeon's placement implant, ne- never with the intention of placing implants myself at the time. But ultimately, I got to a point where um, I started to become interested in, in placing them. So, mm. so then I started to do some relatively, you know, some simpler surgical procedures like maybe a little bit of crown lengthening in, in cases that weren't uh, critical, maybe some little connective tissue grafts and ridge augmentations in, in uh, little edentulous uh, sides. Mm. Uh, then I started to place implants in relatively uh, straightforward situations, let's say a missing, a missing premolar perhaps, something like that. Uh, maybe a missing molar where there wasn't any anatomical structure in the way. And um, and, and I, I don't think you can seriously entertain placing implants in the aesthetic zone without really comprehensive grafting skills. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, so I think you need to develop those skills before you start placing those. And, and, and I think the, the, the stuff that you would avoid uh, the most uh, would be anything in the aesthetic zone. I think it's really easy to come undone in that area. If you come undone somewhere else, it's not going to turn into a, mm, a mm. legal disaster. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, so for me, that that process was probably a, 
an eight-year process where I was only yeah. stepping into the next stage after I was confident with the preceding stage. Um, and, you know, I think that's really good for different to my journey, but, 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 but I would recommend my journey. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you obviously, if you're building on a solid foundation, when you, you get to those harder, complex cases, you're going to see what could go wrong yeah. and you're going to navigate that in a much wiser way. Um, implants are obviously the key one in that regard. What's Are there any other uh, things that you see uh, graduates stepping into? Potentially, I guess, in the pros um, area, you may see some referrals of cases where you think perhaps a clinician wasn't... Um, uh, experienced enough or educated enough or did not see what was going to go wrong? Um, you mentioned full, full mouth rehabs and, and I, I guess that's an obvious um, hmm. uh, one. It, it can seem so simple, you know, to prepare a bunch of teeth and get an impression and send it off to the yeah. lab. But um, I think to do that type of case properly, um, you know, you, you don't have to be a genius, but it does require a, a um, you can do it better if you have sufficient mm. knowledge and you have some experience and you've maybe tried some simpler cases uh, first. And so, yeah. For the for the listeners who um, who when you say simpler, um, can you yeah explain that in a bit of detail? So, for instance, what are those big red flag cases where you think, well, that's just no way? Uh, you know, probably pros only kind of case. What's a case um, where you think, well, look, if you're going to get into that after having the foundations right, um, this is the style of case you might do first? The first thing I'd say is I don't look at many cases and think a general practitioner shouldn't do that case. I'm generally looking at a case and asking Mm -hmm. myself whether I can do the case. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... um, uh, Oh, I don't know... Um, I guess um, I guess any case where you're making a big change to someone's occlusion, that's probably any case where you're going to alter vertical dimension. Um, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of knowledge that's required to work out um, what vertical dimension you're going to work to, um, uh, how, what, what, a, what occlusal scheme you're going to develop uh, and again, mm. that doesn't have to be very confident, but it's still a decision that you need to. Uh, that doesn't have to be very complex, but it's still a decision that you have to make. And then, in the end, how you're going to combine those two things and have the patient look good uh, as well, because in the end, that that might be the thing that the patient cares about mm. more than anything. And putting those three things together, um, uh, you know, it's like most things. It might not be so difficult when you know how but it's easy to come unstuck before you know how to do that. So I think it's that they're not the sort of cases that you would just step into. In fact, that there's a, a case I saw posted uh, on Facebook uh, recently where someone was asking for some advice about a, a case, and it looked like a, a really uh, difficult case. And the, the chances are if you're asking for advice on Facebook, you're not in a great position to manage that type of case. Uh, this should be the first red flag. I think it's a red flag, yeah. Um, mm. So I'm not, I mean, obviously I'm involved in uh, teaching people uh, how to manage those more complex cases and this isn't a sell for those course. The point, but the point I want to make is I'm, I'm not mm. saying that you shouldn't do those cases. I'm saying that uh, somehow, some way, you should 
um, be taking serious steps to educate yourself before you start doing those cases. Yeah, and and, and build your foundations and, and grow that base before you, you get into that stuff. That's that's pretty wise wise advice. I always I love to ask this question and I want you to think about your career and where you're at now. I want you to think about if you could go back and tell yourself something just after graduation around that time and something that would change your career, maybe accelerate to where you are or something that would help you. What are the things you would tell yourself when you were graduating? It's so tricky. Um, I mean, I, for firstly, I'm reasonably happy with how my career proceeded. Like it kind of... That's good to hear. Evolved <laughs> gradually, and 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 I'm I'm, I'm happy with that. But but I, I guess um, I guess the sooner you educate yourself after dental school, the more rapidly you can uh, progress. So, um, mm. you know, we often get, and once again, this isn't a, a sell, but but people uh, in their first and second year of graduation often say to me or Michael, uh, you know, is it too early to do? The mini residency in postodontics, for example, and um, I don't think it is. I, I think it's true to say that you would get more out of it if you were in your fifth year of graduation, and you would get more out of it if you were in your tenth year after graduation. But by the same token, in the first or second year after graduation, it's going to accelerate your position to to a certain point, and it might be that you need to do it again three years later to to really get the full benefit out of it but you're still going to um, uh, move ahead more rapidly. So the, the, the point I want to make is that the, the sooner, the, the sooner, I suppose, the, the sooner you identify your own areas of interest, whether they're endodontics, orthodontics, restorative dentistry, what, whatever, um, jump into education um, because dental school is, is it's just the start. Absolutely. It's, it really is just the start and if you invest in yourself, you can take those steps forward much, much quicker. That's good advice. This question ties very closely in, into that as well and I think it's more, I want you to think about the graduates that are coming out right now and perhaps thinking about what you see that might be a problem or, or, or not but if you could get in the ear of every single graduate in Australia or in the world and, and really teach them something or have them understand a concept that you feel may be missing? What do you think people are missing as they graduate? Um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm really big on those those basics of shape and colour um, and I don't think they're especially well taught at dental school and I don't think there's a there are too many patients that uh, walk into any dental practice in the country that don't want their teeth to, to look uh, reasonably good. Mm. Understanding shape and colour is is really fundamental. Um, so this idea of understanding morphology and becoming a little bit obsessed with it and under, understanding why teeth look the way they look. So, but obviously, I'm coming from a particular orientation and focus. You know, if I was an endodontist, I'd, I'd probably be you know, talking about how to manage trauma or um, or, or, mm. or, or something. But um, you know, maybe. Maybe that would be my small contribution to that. Well, that's that's certainly what I'm going to take from this. <laughs> Good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tony, I, I really appreciate you you spending your time with us this afternoon and sharing your insights, your story and, and your views on, on quite a lot of, a lot of things. Um, I know you don't want to 
you know, it's not a sell for your CEO dental, but I do want to just let everyone know that you do do courses. You do these with Michael Mendicost through CEO Dental, um, and you actually you lecture in a few different ways around the world, internationally. Actually, um, I've seen some of your lectures, and we've all seen a lot of your work um, on Facebook, and it's it's exceptional. So I, I recommend people do check it out. Um, I appreciate your time, Tony. Thank you very much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for. Uh, bothering to ask me to be interviewed. It's an absolute <laughs> pleasure. I hope there's someone out there that might even listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt. Thanks. Thanks. What an awesome throwback to a great interview from Dr. Tony Rotundo. This is one of our all-time listener favourites and it's not hard to see why. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it just as much as I did. Hi everyone, I'm Erica and I run the socials and help coordinate the podcast behind the scenes. From now on, I'll also be popping in at the end of our feature interviews to keep you in the loop with our giving project, introducing the dental spotlight and updating you on any other significant events going on. Let's talk about the giving project. You all know the drill by now. It's based off the concept where if we all just give 1%, collectively we can make a difference. We're partnering up again with B1G1 and this month we're dedicating our donations to the emergency COVID relief projects in India. Personally, I've been reflecting on how lucky I am to be practicing in student clinics right now where we have access to full PPE and vaccinations to protect both ourselves and our patients. We're so lucky to be where we're at in Australia, but unfortunately it isn't the same for our friends around the world. India is currently being overwhelmed by record numbers of COVID cases and PPE is scarce. In partnership with the international relief teams, B1G1 is planning to send a series of air shipments with the first lot consisting of over 60,000 protective gowns and more PPE to follow. We want to be a part of it and we want you to be as well. So for every share, repost and 100 listens this month, we'll be donating a dollar to the cause. It may not be much, but it's definitely a start. If you'd like to contribute more or make your own impact, visit dentalheadstart.com giving. 100% of the proceeds will go directly to the cause as we cover all the admin fees. Now about the Dental Spotlight. This is something I'm super excited to share with you all. Dental Head Start was born with the hopes of creating a community where we can openly share our stories and what we learn. And we wouldn't be a community if it wasn't for you, our listeners. So we want to give back to you and shout you out. Whether you be a dentist, therapist, hygienist, dental student or new grad, all you have to do is share our content and tag us. You can take a screenshot, an Insta story what you're listening to, or repost any of our posts. Then each week, we'll choose someone to feature. It's all about growing the community. To kick it off with our very first dental spotlight, we have Christian Fernando, a final year dental student at Griffith University, who's doing great things and documenting his journey. Check him out at dr.c.fernando on Instagram to see what he's getting up to in his final year. Thank you for being such an active listener, Christian. We can't wait to see more from you. Well, that's all from me today. Thank you all for listening. Until next time. We come out of uni and we're so eager to learn all these complex topics, but what we really need to do is to be able to communicate well and do the restorative basics really, really well. The course by Rope Global Restoration Fundamentals is clearly made for this. This is a course with 10 different speakers. It's delivered virtually on demand and part of their premium member service. You can buy it on its own or get it as a member.
With 10 different speakers talking about anterior, posterior, preps, solving problems, this is the course to really take your restorations to the next level. Find out more details in the show notes and get 30% off with the Dental Head Start discount code.